And please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's found on page 1014 on the Pew Bibles in front of you. You should be very familiar with the first three verses of 1 Peter now. Um, we are in sermon number 7 on three verses, and so if my calculations are correct, and if we were to preach the, the entire epistle, it would take 242 sermons and almost five years to get through the epistle. We're going to turn our attention to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's stand and sing our song of preparation together. It's who you are, that you would show us who we are, and that we would see our Savior and we would rest on his and your unchanging grace. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. October 21st, 2015. For fans of Marty McFly, you know that date well. It was a date in the movie made in 1985 when Marty McFly travels to the future. And now, Back to the Future takes place entirely in the past. Don't you feel old? For those of you who haven't seen it, spoiler alert, however, it has been 30 years. Marty, who is played by Michael J. Fox, accidentally travels back to 1955 in a DeLorean car powered by what? 1.2 gigawatts. It was invented by his friend, Dr. Emmett Brown. When he goes back to 1955, the doc warns him not to do one thing. He tells him not to alter history. He inadvertently does so for the worse, but eventually does so for the better when his dad, as a teenager, punches out the proverbial bully named Biff, and Marty, full of hope that things will be different, returns back to the present of 1985, and he wakes up to find that his family is completely changed by one event in history. Good movie. Good story, not true. For Christians, though, we actually have something better. We have one historical event that has changed our future, that gives us a living hope. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to ask three questions about this living hope. Why do we need hope? What is it? And then how do we get it? The first question is this. Why do we need hope? Well, it's fairly obvious. And Peter notes this throughout his epistle. He notes this. He notes that we live in a far less than perfect world. We live in a broken world. We live in a world what the Bible calls fallen. We live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. Intrinsically and existentially, we feel this, we know this, and we buck against it. Peter is writing to people who are suffering. You can see it in verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
We live in a world of suffering and trials, and I don't have to remind you of just a few things. We live with frustrating work. We live with difficult marriages. We live with cancer. We live with abuse, with loneliness, with pain, with job loss, with addictions, with divorce, war, and death. And it affects all of us. As one caretaker used to sign all of his letters, yours eventually. All of us face the reality of living in a fallen, broken, less than perfect world. And without hope, it will lead to cynicism and disillusionment. The Christians knew this in Peter's day, but so did the non-Christians. You see, we are unavoidably hope-based creatures, and there is no way to get through life unless you have it. Some of you are probably familiar with Viktor Frankl. He was a Jewish psychoanalyst who was put into the death camps during World War II, specifically Auschwitz. He was in prison there, and he survived, and he wrote about how people responded to the incredible suffering in the death camps. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he wrote about the destruction of hope. One of the things that he noticed was that some of the prisoners just sort of withered up and died, and other prisoners stayed strong, and he wanted to know why. Do you know what he concluded? He basically said that if a prisoner has lost hope, or faith in their future, then he or she was doomed. And he gives this example. He says, One of my friends in the camp had a dream that the war would end March 30th. He was convinced the dream was a revelation. But as the date drew nearer, it became clear from the news reports that the war was not ending. On March 29th, he began running a temperature. On March 30th, he lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. His loss of hope had lowered his body's resistance to all of the diseases in the camp. Here's basically what Frankel concluded. Life in a concentration camp exposes your soul's foundation. And only a few of the prisoners were able to keep their full inner liberty and inner strength. That life only has meaning in any circumstance if you have hope that suffering circumstances And even death cannot destroy. People cannot live without hope. And one of the questions that I want to ask you this morning is, do you have a real hope or do you have an artificial hope? Every culture has hope or we simply sink into absurdity. We're all absolutely shaped by hope. If you believe that we came from nothing and we are going to nothing... If you believe that our beginning, our origins is insignificant, and if you believe our destiny is insignificant, like Nietzsche, then everything in life is meaningless, this world is dark, and we are hopeless. But most of us don't live that way. We place our hope in something. We have hopes for our children. We have hopes for a spouse. We have hopes for a vocation. We have hopes for a home. We have hopes for world peace if you're in a pageant. We all have various hopes. But these hopes inevitably let us down eventually. 
And what do we do when something that we place our hope in lets us down? We typically do one of two things, right? If one hope lets us down, we get another hope. So if a spouse lets us down, we get a different spouse. If our first child let us down, we have two more. If we... If we don't like our job or our vocation, we get a different job or vocation. Or maybe we simply need a different vacation next year and we go from hope to hope. But you know what? Eventually, even the best marriages fade because eventually, no matter how awesome your spouse is, your spouse will eventually die. So the second way that we respond when hope fades is to give up. You've seen it, right? People just give up. As long as hope remains, we fight on. We continue to work. But when hope fades, our strength fades. That's why politicians talk about hope. Everybody longs for hope and everybody enjoys a change for the better. As long as there is hope, then there's a possibility that your life might be different, that it might be better. You see, you can live in a shack with hope. But you can't live in a castle without it. Hope is necessary for our well-being and it gives us motivation and energy to live life. And hell is actually where there is no more hope. I think Dante was right when he said, Abandon all hope, all you who enter here. And Peter is reminding the Christians here that they have a great hope, a living hope, and that when they embrace it, they can live life under any circumstances because of their living hope. You see, hope is not something that Christians uniquely need, but it is something that we uniquely have. The biblical idea of hope is very different from our idea of hope. So second question, what is it? What is living hope? Hope is a really important concept for Christians, and it's very important. It's mentioned over 80 times alone in the New Testament. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 along with faith, love, and hope. And Peter mentions it several places in his epistle. It's a common word for the writers of the New Testament. It's a common word for Peter, and it's actually a common word for us. So, if I were to ask you this question, will the Washington Redskins win the Super Bowl? You might say, I don't know. I hope so. In other words, we think that hope is a desire for something that is uncertain. Implicit is a question mark. Now, I can share an example of that from my life. After I met Kelly, I asked her out on a date and I knew that I needed to impress her because I had been thinking about her a lot since I met her and I assumed that she was also thinking about me. However, when I saw her on campus a few weeks later and I went running to ask her out, I stopped the elevator doors and I asked her out to coffee and her response was, now what's your name? (laughs) So I knew I needed to impress her. So I remembered that she had said that one of her favorite books was, at the time, captivating, subtitle, Unveiling the Mystery of a Woman's Soul. I thought, I need to read that. (laughs) So I went down to the library, read it that afternoon, and it's a story about romance. It's a story about adventure. 
And it's illustrated through the movie, The Last of the Mohicans. Brilliant idea. Theme date. She agrees to go out with me. And I drive up to pick her up in my Jeep Wrangler with a tarp covering a bow, a quiver of arrows, and a target in my back seat. I picked her up. She did not want to know where we were going in her high hills. I drove her out to a remote area in an orange grove, and she was way more terrified than impressed. (laughs) It worked out, obviously. But after I got back, my friends asked me, how did it go? I said, "Mm, I don't know. Will there be another date? What did I say? I hope so. Our hope, the way that we use the word hope, is filled with uncertainty. It's a question mark. But that's not the way that the writers of the New Testament or Peter uses the word hope. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6 verse 11. It says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing what? The full assurance of hope to the end. The biblical definition of hope is full assurance. It's confidence. It's something that hasn't happened yet, but you know that it will It doesn't mean to cross your fingers, but biblical hope is full of assurance. Not uncertain desire, but confident expectation in the fulfillment of God's promises that he has made to me and you. It's not a generic, wistful, baseless hope that things will get better, but it's a life-transforming, life-giving, life-reforming, concrete hope that believers have that is certain in the future. So it's obvious why we need hope. It's obvious what hope is from the biblical definition. So then the third question becomes, how do we get it? That sounds like a great hope. Well, if you were to read further in 1 Peter uh, 3.15, you would maybe come across that familiar verse that says, as believers, you should always be prepared to give a reason for what? For the hope that is in you. If you went to lunch today and your friends asked you who are not Christians, why do you believe? What's the basis of your hope? How would you respond? Well, Peter answers this question in a number of ways, and today we're just going to look at one. Look at verse 3. He says, born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The first way that hope is nurtured is to look back and to see what God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have done. And if you look in the first few chapters of 1 Peter, what have they done? We have been elected by the Father, we have been sanctified by the Spirit, and we have been saved through the blood of Jesus. Peter says if you look back at the resurrection, then everything will be different. Hope begins with the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christian faith, there would be no birth, and without no new birth, there would be no hope. Do you understand this? Without the historical, literal, 
actual bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we are foolish people and there would be no hope. And Jesus would just be a footnote and another wannabe guru and mystic in a long line of them in the history of the world. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, we are foolish. And I'm wasting my time and you're wasting your time by being here. And we should all just leave and go get pancakes and mimosas. That's what Peter means. The resurrection changes everything. If it was true, if it was historical, if it was actual, then nothing will ever be the same again. You know, Peter had a lot of nicknames. One of the nicknames of Peter was the Apostle of Hope. And that's a good title, but remember that he was a man who knew what it was like to lose hope in two ways. In one way, he was a Jew, and he longed, he had a hope, what? For the restoration of Israel to be as great as it was under the kingship of David and Solomon. And he was looking for a new Messiah that would overthrow the Roman Empire. And who did he think that it was? Remember his confession that Christ, you are the son of a living God. His hope was that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David. But what happened? Jesus was arrested, crucified, and killed. Hope had faded. But not only had hope faded for his national hopes, but hope had also faded for himself. Another nickname of Peter was the betrayer. If you remember during the arrest and during the trial and the crucifixion, that Peter denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And if you remember in that story, the third time, he and Jesus lock eyes. And when the woman, even the young woman, had said, aren't you a follower of Jesus Christ? He had said, woman, I don't even know that man. Peter had gone away. He had lost hope in a national Israel. He had lost hope in himself. He was terrified. All of the disciples were scared. What were they doing? They were locked in a room upstairs. They were terrified. Peter says, I think I'm going to go back to fishing. None of them were sitting in this locked room saying, I can't wait for Sunday. <laughs> they were scared. They were terrified. They were hopeless. But six weeks later, Peter is out on those same streets in Jerusalem talking to the same crowd that crucified Jesus and he was boldly preaching the gospel. What changed? Well, you remember in that upper room, a woman comes running in and says, the tomb is empty. And John and Peter take off, as my grandfather would say, lickety-split. They go running to the tomb. John's faster, so he gets there first, but then he's timid. He stops outside the tomb. Peter's brash. He goes right into the tomb. And what does Peter find? He finds an empty tomb. He finds the grave clothes, but he finds no body. And everything begins to change because Jesus appears to Peter. He appears to the disciples. He appears to hundreds. He didn't just rise again 
in their hearts. But he ate breakfast with them. He drank wine with them. They took their fingers and they put them in the nail prints in his hands. They were convinced of the historical, physical, actual, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everything changed. Because when you look at the message of Peter, what was he preaching? He didn't show up on the streets in Jerusalem. He didn't all of a sudden, six weeks later, think, you know what? Jesus had some really good ethical teaching about loving your neighbors and turning the other cheek. I think we ought to go out for that message, and I'm willing to die for it. No. Why? What did he preach in Acts chapter 2? This was his sermon. He de- Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up. He loosed the pains of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He preaches boldly because he's convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. He's changed. These men preach and are willing to die for this message now. And look, the people in the first century, they weren't a lot more, uh, they weren't more foolish than we are. And so I don't have time to get into all the evidence for the physical resurrection of Jesus, but I commend you to examine it, to look at it as a historical fact and to weigh it. So Peter's hope was restored because Jesus the Messiah was alive and the kingdom could still come. But then think about this. Peter still had to deal with his personal failure. He still had to deal with You know, am I worthy to go out and preach because I've denied Jesus? And do you know why he was empowered? Do you know why he was enabled to go out and to preach this gospel? was because this. He understood that the message of Christianity is not about what you can do for God. It's not about your record. It's not about your morality. It's not about your niceness. You cannot earn the favor of God. But he understood that God's favor had been given to him because of his faith, because of his union in Jesus Christ. Christ is risen. And because Peter was united to Christ in his death and resurrection, that Jesus died the death that Peter and I and you deserve, and Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and the thing that changed Peter was not ethical teaching, but it was substitution and resurrection. You see, the cross is proof that God accepted the payment of Jesus. It's vindication. You know this. Like if you commit a crime and you're sentenced to to jail for five years, if you serve your time for five years, you walk out as what? A free man. Because your debt has been accepted, it has been paid, and you walk out as a free person. And when Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb, it meant that Peter's debt was paid. It meant that my debt was paid. It means that your debt was paid. The resurrection is a receipt stamped across history that your sin and your debt And my sin and my debt has been paid. If you believe in him, you will be saved. My life is hidden with Christ because I am in union with Christ 
in his death and resurrection. I stand in Christ with my sins forgiven. And my hope is living because my Savior is living. You see, a living hope is not based on circumstances. It's based on a person. It's based on Jesus. And if you are born again, and if you know that Jesus is your Savior, then you have this living hope. And you see, remember the beginning story of Back to the Future about how one event shaped his life forever, Marty McFly. If we know this one event, the physical, actual, historical, bodily, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, then our eternity, our life is changed forever. That will sustain you to endure a difficult marriage. It will give you peace when you face a terminal illness. And it will give you strength to fight against sin in your life and in my life. And that's one of the resources that we have for living hope. There are many others. James is going to talk about our future inheritance next week. Because that gives us hope. Our future inheritance is not just a consolation, but it's going to be a restoration. You don't get your old body back. You get a better body. You don't get your old life back. You get your new life back. And our future inheritance is going to be amazing. And that gives us living hope. Friends, that's what is offered to you today in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to believe in our hearts and to know in our minds that you were raised from the dead. Lord, we pray that this would anchor our hope, that we would have great confidence and assurance that because you were raised again from the dead, because the tomb was empty, that our debts have been paid, that we are free, that we are living, and that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Father, convince us of what you have done in the past and convince us of what you are coming to do again in the future. Lord, enable us to possess this living hope until we see you again. Help us to love you even though we don't see you yet. In Jesus' name, amen.